Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skyler. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. They fought for the freedom of middle. The middle of middle. The middle of the middle. The middle of the war. Bring it ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat in the house for all things entertainment. I am your host, Andrew Oje, coming to you hopefully in high definition this week. Well, I guess we'll find out, but I should sound crystal clear, and I'm happy to be here with you all here on this second episode of The Middle Seats. I'm going to throw it to my co-host now. He can solve a Rubik's Cube in three and a half seconds and melt your heart in half that time. Mr. Nate Lungarini. How you doing, Nate? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, glad to be back on the show, Drew. Glad I got a proper introduction this time around and looking forward to talking some movies. I've been practicing your name ever since. It's been like my eight mile moment. I've had my mom's spaghetti all over me, but we have figured it out and we're doing great here. (laughs) Moving to my other co-host. He is our technology wizard. He's been operating on Windows 2003 since 2016. Mr. Jay Kensler, how you doing? I was going to say we're feeling sarcastic today, are we? Yeah, I'm in a good mood, man. I'm very bubbly. I'm like I can, I can Ryan tell. Gosling, City of Stars, La La Land. So uh, so for those who don't know, we are recording on Monday night, and we are hours away from Andrew Ajay's birthday. So a special birthday shout-out to him for those those listening. Um, Woohoo! Way to not date the podcast, Jake. Uh, but that's <laughs> I appreciate it. Happy birthday, Drew. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. 22, it's a pretty meaningless birthday, if we're going to get morbid about it. But anyway, we're not here to talk about my birthday. We're here to talk about movies. This is the Middle Seats Podcast. If you're joining us just for the first time, which you probably are or possibly are, it's our second episode. Our show is divided into three segments. Our first segment is called Lobby Talk. It's like the talk that you have out in the lobby with your friends, except we talk about a very specific topic. Each member of the crew proposes it each week. This week, it is Jake's turn, and he'll get into that in a second. Our second segment is news. We talk about the news and entertainment and movies and TV this week. And then we will end with our feature review, which is of Matthew Vaughn's sequel, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. So with all that said and done, uh, we want to thank everybody who listened to the first episode of It. It was a big success, and we're hoping to just keep expanding. Um, And we're going to tell you how to like our show and comment on our show. Um, If you have any comments, questions, or concerns or anything, wait till the end of the show, and we'll tell you how to do that. Um, With that said, we're going to move into our first segment. It is Lobby Talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby? What are you in the lobby? I'll blow up the block before you can make the lobby. Alrighty. Um, so for our second ever episode, we have quite the hefty topic to tackle. And I'm going to explain it a little more after I propose it. But generally the topic is, do you have to really understand or get a movie to enjoy it? And that comes from last week's movie Mother with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. Um, the director, Darren Aronofsky had a clear, he himself had a clear cut vision, but was intentionally ambiguous with it. And as most people have clearly stated there, most people are pretty much hating it. It got an F cinema score. It's not doing well with audiences at all. So most people aren't getting it. And even if they are, some are still hating it, but you know, there's some correlation, some not. And that's my question. Can you, can you like a movie without understanding it? And even vice versa. Um, so another couple of examples I want to go into are movies like Birdman. Birdman's a pretty good example, I think. 
because it was a Best Picture winner. Um, a lot of people do adore it, and yet some people just did not like it, didn't get what it was going for, um, and etc. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to say, even though you might not understand a movie, I think you can still enjoy a movie to an extent. You don't necessarily have to get all the, the details and the pieces of a movie to fully enjoy it. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes if you don't get a movie, it pisses you off and you hate it. But generally, I think even if you don't fully understand something, you can still enjoy even you know even the ride it puts you through. But I want to throw this over to to Nate, who I know has some pretty strong feelings for for Mother and this concept as well. All right, thank you, Jake. So let let's start off with with the generals. Um, you definitely can enjoy a movie for. A variety of reasons. Uh, it might be it looks pretty. It might be you love the actor. It might be just like one really cool scene makes the movie for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all well and good. Now, when you're talking about movies that are designed to be ambiguous by nature, where you have a whole bunch of different lenses that you can look through a movie to and analyze the movie in a different way, that's when you run into a lot of personal opinions. So just for a little bit of specifics, uh, you have the movie Mother, which some people, including myself, might call it pretentious, where it tries to cover so much ground and it has so many different interpretations all splattered throughout the movie. This one in particular has a lot of religious context. It has uh, some environmental context. It's just a weird movie in general. And because it was so cluttered and there wasn't a set path for me as a viewer to follow, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, Do I think that's a rule that applies to all movies? No. But I think it is a significant factor where you, if you don't get on board with a movie for some reason, especially something as drastic as the overarching themes of a movie, then you're not going to enjoy it. And I think That's this fair. comes down to, for me, this would be the comes down to the discussion of an idiom that I like to go to a lot. Can you like a movie or not like a movie and just appreciate it? And I think there's a different way to tackle that. You know, um, some of these movies, a lot of pretentious movies, like Nate was saying, Mother, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow as a movie just for general consumption. It was marketed poorly and people going in expecting to take it as a literal story had to look figuratively, had to look metaphorically. And, I mean, a lot of people walked out and they didn't really get it. Um, And I think a big factor that goes into that is whether or not, first of all, what your expectations are going into it. Um, And second of all, what exactly it means for a film to tell its story. Now, if we're talking about Mother specifically again, um, I had my point and I lost it. (laughs) So, (laughs) Lost the wind. It's It's... It's fig- my, my comment's figurative. Um, but anyway, my, the point I'm trying to get is, yes, I think you can like a movie and appreciate it without outright loving it, you know, without outright getting what it's trying to do specifically. Right. I agree. And, there, you know, there are some very – there are some movies that are just very artistic. And, you know, even if you don't get what it's going for, you might appreciate that. Um, and for some more distinction, um, we're going for movies that are not like, you know, Prisoners or Inception where you can – you can go with the movie and just the very end is ambiguous. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about movies more like uh, Donnie Darko, Birdman, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, Under the Skin, if you saw that, you know, that weird sci-fi movie. You're talking like that. 
movies where right off the bat they're just odd and like right from the beginning you're not sure if you get it or not and you follow it straight through and it's just it's just weird can you enjoy movies like that so when i think about what i love about birdman specifically um i think about michael keaton's performance i think about the cinematography the unbrokenness of it i think about the satire of hollywood and some of the stuff that that does within the story and i know it's ambiguous throughout what it's trying to do with his psychosis what it's trying to do with that ending specifically but it's not specifically why I love the movie. I do have other reasons why. And I think Nate kind of hit it when he was talking about elements of movies. You can really love certain elements of films, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to love and or go beyond appreciation for a film as a whole. Yeah, I, I, I do really think and believe that there's always a part of a movie that you're going to enjoy or not enjoy. They might just have a bad movie or a movie that doesn't speak to you as a viewer. Uh, But as long as you have some sort of connection to the movie, that's the make it or break it point of enjoying a film. And I like when we're not spoon fed as an audience either. I think that's a big key factor for me as far as these kind of films go. Talking about how, ambiguity there's a difference between not making sense completely and there's a difference between you having to do the work and figure out what the director is hiding behind and what he is using his different elements to kind of put together clues for what he potentially might you know what potentially this movie might be about i think there's a difference between not making sense and there's a difference between you know a very very cryptic movie too i i think that's a very good point to make where you know if there's also there could be confusing movies, you know, because they're confusing by nature, or there can be confusing just because the director just did not quite have the the competent the competency to quite make this movie as he thought or he envisioned or the script had or whatever. You know, there are certainly incompetent movies, um, but then there are, you know, plenty of movies which we're talking about that their vision is clear cut. They're just you know they're hard to quite grasp and even some people might find that with with interstellar's third act i guess not the whole i think people most people get the whole thing before the third act um but you know uh actually andrew you once told me this you have to have some faith in um accomplished directors too so if you get confused by a movie like inception you have to kind of lean with the benefit of the doubt that it's it's more or less not christopher nolan's fault Andrew said something I really, really liked. He said spoon-fed, and I think that's a really cool term to use for movies because there are people that hate when a movie spoon-feeds you information, whether it's just exposition, whether it's the theme of the movie, whether it's the overall message of the movie. They hate it when the director spoon-feeds them information. But then there's people that need to have that information spoon-fed for them in order to understand what's going on in the movie. And honestly, I think I kind of fall into the second half more than the first half. I don't like exposition dumps per se, but I don't like it when there's just so much for me to interpret from a movie. It almost feels like too much work for me to enjoy the movie. Uh, I'd much rather be able to sit back and let the director take me on a journey that I wouldn't have been able to experience on my own. I certainly don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there when you're saying that um, because the, what the people that I'm thinking of that want to be spoon-fed, think about the movies today. 
why do a lot of people go to the movies? It's a social event. A lot of people act like it's their living room. They're on their phone the whole time. They want to be able to half pay attention and be with their friends. Uh, so when they get something mildly challenging, <laughs> and we can get into the various stories of people being assholes in theaters in a future episode, but when <laughs> a director like Aronofsky, like Inuritu, tries to do something mildly challenging, they kind of there's kind of a little bit of backlash there. And it's just a matter we'll of, we're back, talking yeah. about me. Yeah, we're doing. We're talking about mainstream movies in general. Like the three of us took an experimental film class. There is a a bunch of styles of film where specifically they are making it to confuse you, to upset the viewer. We talk about the Dada movement, of course. If we're going to get really film <laughs> scholarly with it, that's one movement that is completely based on just pissing the audience off. Call it's up Sue Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about mainstream. Filmmaking. It's a little bit shocking to me, first of all, that Mother even made it out as a mainstream film. But secondly, the way it was marketed, it completely threw off viewers, and they were just not ready for the figurative nature of the film. And therefore, the backlash was based on, I think, less of not getting it, but less not trying to get it. Yeah, I think there is something to be said there, because I, I had a, I know somebody whose parents saw the movie after hearing that it won Best Picture and that. I personally loved it, and someone else they knew really loved it. They watched it, you know, excited to see what won Best Picture that year. And their exact words were, I didn't get it, nothing happened, I hated it. And I was like, this is about Birdman. I was like, "Not really? That's, you felt, you felt like nothing happened in Bird? I just, I was like, wow, that is, and that was, you know, a learning experience for me as well. There are really some movies that, you know, like Andrew just said, you know, that are so different and so unlike the, the norm that people are not going to go are not going to go with it and they're going to see backlash and there was Birdman was one of my first real experiences from that I have Birdman plummeted in like uh, certain ratings on certain sites with viewers like viewer based sites I was and I was just shocked by it Mother I'm not shocked I was surprised like Andrew said I'm surprised Mother actually went like as wide release as it did I'm because, surprised Mother didn't get an F minus after seeing it, to be completely honest. And I'm surprised it wasn't <laughs> NC-17, too. I'm surprised by a lot of things for that movie. <laughs> There's a lot of surprising things in that movie. Um, but yeah, you know, I I agree. And I I think, you know, it's really interesting. I personally enjoy some some unique pieces. I, I actually did kind of enjoy Mother after sitting with it for a couple of days. I absolutely adore Birdman. I think Birdman's amazing. Um, but, you know, maybe I, maybe I enjoy a little bit more challenge. Maybe... That's why I wanted to pitch the topic. I don't always fully grasp everything in the movie, and sometimes that's okay. Now, sometimes if it's overly confusing or like if an, an ending specifically is too ambiguous, that might frustrate me. But generally, if a director is going with a certain style, even if I don't get everything, I sometimes that's you know that's really okay for me personally. Um, Nate, are we okay with letting Jake have the last word on this, considering it was his that topic? Because I think to it's me. time to move on. Uh, Jake, so a good challenging topic, it kind of – tongue-twisted me earlier, but I think we got a good discussion out of that. And I mean, ultimately, as a viewer, it's up to you to make your decision of what kind of viewer you're going to be. Are you going to try to get ambiguous movies, or are you going to just try and be fed the images and the, the loud, pretty colors or that you're trying go to Go on get? a ride. Go on a ride. That's the nice way of putting it, yeah. Drew. <laughs> or go on a ride. And Nate, I see what you're there doing you there, go. because now it's time for us to transition into our news segment. And this just in a news break special report. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. So our first story in news, um, we're about to strap in. And like Nate said, we're going to take you on a ride. We're talking about Fast and Furious Live. Now, 
eight films in, a gajillion dollars at the box office, especially in the latter half of its franchise. The Fast and Furious movies are an international phenomenon. So naturally, you know, with their high-octane stunts and their big special effects and pyrotechnics, um, people are making a show out of it, a kind of interactive show. It's going to kick off in England, England, England on January 19th, starting in Europe before coming eventually to the uh, Americas. It's taking advantage of the huge international appeal of the series. It's a two-hour show with state-of-the-art 3D projection mapping. So it's going to be kind of like a mixture of like a Monster Trucks and a Disney on Ice production. It doesn't follow the main characters of the series, though Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, will be involved in some kind of manner based on like a board or something like that. And there's no confirmation whether jumping through two skyscrapers back-to-back in Abu Dhabi or outrunning a submarine will be part of the show, but you can expect something crazy to come from that. Jake, have you got your tickets purchased to Fast and Furious Live yet? Huh, um, I'm a little, I'm a little torn. I personally think it's, you know, if they're looking to keep audiences engaged and make money, it is a good idea. I just, I personally don't really care. If I'm being blunt, I don't really care at all. I am not, I am not personally interested in seeing it. It does not catch my, my general eye. I think Furious Seven was good. Uh, I thought five, six, and eight were decent i didn't see one through four um i'm just not a huge fan of the fast and furious franchise in general so i mean live action is, is cool it's different there's not there's not a lot of that out you know for movies at all but i personally i'm just kind of whatever about it like you know cool good for them I, i'm not gonna purchase a ticket okay uh debbie downer over there let's go to <laughs> Nate. Nate, are you <laughs> a little honest. more enthusiastic <laughs> I, I, I don't really know i Honestly, just don't even know what kind of target audience this is trying to appeal to, to be perfectly honest. Like, can you can you explain that a little bit more, Drew? I, seems, I don't know. It seems I, kind of bizarre to me. The The thing that I'm thinking of the most, that it most recalls to me, you guys have both been to Disney, right? A while ago, yeah. but yeah. Have you ever been to that uh, Indiana Jones show where they do the stunts and everything, and it's like a pyrotechnic spectacular show? And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a more, it's more of a high octane, like international version of this. There's going to be cool cars and there's going to be sexy ladies and stunts. different stuff. Stunts, probably stunts. lots of stunts. Yeah. Vin Diesel like, mumbling a little all, bit. <laughs> like that's all well and good, but that, that ride that you're referring to in Disney is mostly for like littler to maybe like teenage kids. I can't see this Fast and Furious like live play being able to get the same kind of like how do i phrase it? i wow, i can't this is see them really getting frustrating you <laughs> it is really frustrating <laughs> it's like i just can't see um like people our age wanting to go see that type of show just because it's fast and furious you know so i and you can't really advertise fast and furious to Little or kids, because they haven't seen these movies. I was going to say, know. I think you could probably ad- advertise it from ages like 11 to 16 or so pretty well. Like, like I, maybe I, not if for they me, go for but... the more monster truck kind of vibe, but... Instead of monster trucks, just really fast cars with stunts and explosions. Really and, cars, yeah. and some people like okay, bock, okay. you know, beating each other up and falling off buildings with the Wilhelm scream. Maybe just talking it out makes a little more sense to me, but it, it just seems like such a... Such a weird direction for such a big franchise to go. Tisk, tisk, tisk. I'm the only 21-year-old here for two more hours. And I got to ask you guys, when did you lose your childhood? When did you lose your heart? Oh, I still have it. I was just never a huge Fast and Furious Jake, guy Jake, to begin Jake. with. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Uh-huh. 
Um, I think this. I I don't know. I, I'm I'm playing this up a little bit. I think it's kind of a stupid idea too. <laughs> um, what? But <laughs> I I will say that it is different. And if it works out for them, we might see more stuff like this in the future. Yeah, I actually um, think it's like, pretty cool and pretty innovative of them. I just don't really care. How did you guys just switch this around on me? My God. <laughs> um, look, we don't like I, agreeing I, with you, Drew. <laughs> who who is who? Who remembers going to Disney on Ice? Did you ever go to Disney on Ice? Do you ever go to the circus? Any kind of those events like that? Yeah, I yeah, I definitely think went so. To, I think both of those at one point in my life. Yeah, and I think I I know Fast and Furious is a PG thirteen franchise, but they're written for six seven year olds who whose parents are inappropriate and let them see things above their grade. Like J- Jake saw Jurassic Park at three. Like those are those <laughs> are the kind of kids watching these movies and really loving them. So these are the kids that are going to drag their parents to this exhibition because you know the tickets are probably going to be pricey i'm expecting it to be um and you never know exactly what you're in for you know whether it'll be worth that price but i think it is targeted towards the tween to lower than tween demographic specifically and i think as far as that goes it'll be a fun time you know i mean we haven't seen any footage from it i'm sure they're still rehearsing for it um it could honestly be ridiculous but you know it's something different, I guess, to talk about. I was going to say, do you know when they're going to where they're going to debut it? Like where the first real big show is going to be? Yeah, it kicks off in England on January nineteenth. Oh, you oh you said England. You had my bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's starting okay. throughout Europe. It's going to hit all the major countries of Europe before eventually even probably making it over here. Which I don't know how it's going to compete with like a monster truck rally here or even the big Disney conglomerate, but we'll see. Who knows? It could be could a uh, good fresh take on you know some new entertainment. Who knows? Anyways, moving on to our next more realistic story. We're talking about things that could have been. Matthew Vaughn, we're going to talk about his new film, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, in a moment. He's one of his best films that he's known for is X-Men First Class. It revitalized the X-Men franchise after two duds in a row with X-Men The Last Stand and X-Men Origins Wolverine. And it eventually led to the groundbreaking success of X-Men Days of Future Past in 2014. Matthew Vaughn was originally slated to direct X-Men Days of Future Past, and he had an idea of a film that he wanted to do in between First Class and Days of Future Past where we would meet a younger version of Wolverine. Now, Hugh Jackman's the one that's been playing the character for 17 years. He leaves the role vacated now that Logan came out and was a huge success earlier this year. But back in around 2013, Vaughn was toying with the idea of recasting the role and having Hugh Jackman meet up with a younger version of Wolverine, a la how the other characters in Days of Future Past were played by younger actors. And one of the actors he threw out as a type of actor that he wanted to play a younger Wolverine in the 1970s was Tom Hardy. Now, Jake, I know you're a huge fan of Tom Hardy. He's a guy that's connected to a lot of major roles, and we never actually see him get cast in most of them. Uh, He's a name that floats around like, oh, you're trying to cast this role? Oh, you want someone to play, you know, Owen Wilson's new comic foil? Here's Tom Hardy. He's one of those names that's attached to, it. it feels like, every project. Um, there's no plans for a reboot yet of the Wolverine character, but never say never. I'm sure they're going to let it gestate a little bit after Logan. So what could have been? Nate, what do you think of this potential what could have been? Um, now, I, I'm not usually on the board for uh, for extraneous sequels and prequels, and I don't really think I'm feeling this one either. For me, Tom Hardy is young, but he's not that young. Uh, so even compared to Jackman, he's, there wouldn't be a huge age difference in the characters. And I'd feel like I'd just be seeing the original X-Men all over again from 2000. Uh, 
I and even if they went younger than Tom Hardy, I don't think it would have been a worthwhile story unless they threw out something ridiculous, but I, I don't know enough about the character to be able to speak too much towards his origins that we didn't already see in all these other X-Men sequels. Uh, Tom Hardy would be an interesting choice, but I don't think it'd be enough to save kind of a forgettable movie. Jake, what do you think? Um, well, I personally loved Days of Future Past. I think it's, um, I actually do think it's the strongest X-Men movie, so I'm glad it turned out the way it did. But I think this is at least, at least a cool idea. I mean, you know, anything could be executed poorly, you know, but it's definitely different. It's definitely interesting. They'd have to have a good reason for them to be fighting and whatnot. Um, but Matthew Vaughn's a very, you know, an accomplished director. He did X-Men First Class, which turned out very well. Um... And as far as, like, casting, I love Tom Hardy. He's one of my favorite actors working today. But I kind of see what – I think he could do do anything. But I think – I see what Nate's saying. He's not that much younger. It would look a little weird. They're definitely to get somebody younger than, than Hardy. But maybe with Hardy's personality he's going with. I don't know. I think it's definitely a cool idea. But I'm, I'm – I don't know. I think I'm kind of glad with how Days of Future Past turned out overall. So – Right, and I think it would have been a little disconcerting if Days of Future Past was going to end up the same way where Hugh Jackman's character was going to be sent back in time by Ellen Page. Um, I'm wondering if they would have had the two characters meet up or if Hugh Jackman would just be in the movie for about 10 minutes and just be laying on a table and they would have Tom Hardy's consciousness throughout the entire film. Um, it would be interesting to see how they would do that. I think it's, I do agree It's 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 a strange concept to think of anybody else in the role of Wolverine at the same time as Hugh Jackman, who came on as an unknown in 2000. He really hadn't done much and completely made that role his own. Made a lot of people forget that his, physically he's not really matching of the Wolverine character in the comics. He's too tall. A lot of people say he's not as top-heavy as the Wolverine character is. Um, but I think it would have been tough at the time to get a new actor in that role and have him put him up next to Hugh Jackman, you know? Absolutely. They're already talking Maybe. about they're already talking about saying like good luck to whoever has to play Wolverine next cuz not only do they they send him off well, Hugh Jackman's done such a good job over 17 set yeah, 17 years now. So, you know, they would have had to pick really a great young actor who basically has similar like same hair color, eye color and, you know, similar height and then you know, as long as they get like the similar features down, they would have to have a, an actor who was like different in person. I'm not different in personality, but like you can tell the difference. So it's not just the same person fighting. And I think more than anything, what would be the motive? Like, why why are they fighting? What is it about? Because, I mean, hi, totally hypothetically speaking, if I were to go back in time for some reason, why would I have any reason to fight myself? You know. Why would they have yeah. to fight over, over what? What would be going on? <laughs> I, don't know, that would, I would just scratch it up to comic book weirdom. They can always make something up to make an awesome scene work. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what a Matthew Vaughn Wolverine movie would look like. Because think about the hyper violence of Kingsman and Kick-Ass. Uh, not so much Days of Future, uh, not Days of Future Past, First Class. Not so much those films. But his R-rated movies, and maybe he would get, maybe... Fox would have given him a chance to go crazy with the Wolverine character and kind of do something bloody and violent that we didn't see until Logan. 
Um, that would have been very interesting. Yeah, and I, if Hugh Jackman wasn't the actor playing that, I feel like he would have got felt a little gypped at that point. I mean, he got his due. <laughs> yeah. um, but he hadn't really gotten a chance to shed any kind of blood, his Wolverine, really. Got to say the F word once and then maybe flip off Cyclops in the original, but that's about as <laughs> intense that his role really got as far as blood and sex and violence and language went. Would have been interesting, but alas, it's in the past. It is indeed. Nice job, Jake. Anyway, we're going to get to our final story here. It's kind of a mishmash of a few stories. It is kind of our trailer talk. This was a big week for trailers, a lot of releases. Not exactly all of them very interesting, but it was a pretty slow news week. I'll highlight the trailers that came out. You can look at them on YouTube on your own time. We got our first look at Alicia Vikander in the reboot of Tomb Raider. The second trailer for Murder on the Orient Express, the star-studded remake from Kenneth Branagh. Red Sparrow, kind of Jennifer Lawrence's attempt at an atomic blonde kind of action movie. The Maze Runner, Death Cure, the long, kind of delayed third installment in that franchise. Of course, Dylan O'Brien was injured, and they had to put it on the shelf for a while, but it's finally coming in January. Sea of Isles, the much-anticipated, very excited for Wes Anderson's stop animated motion movie. And, of course, the atrocious-looking Peter Rabbit adaptation from sony animation we're going to highlight one though we're going to take a look at the second trailer for jumanji welcome to the jungle jumanji pick a character and you're that person in the game get on my back oh no i'll carry you come on i would rather die i'm an overweight middle-aged man wait a second where's my phone the long, gesticulating sequel, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, is directed by Jake Kasdan, who's done some good and bad things. He's done Walk Hard, and he was a producer on Freaks and Geeks. Yay. But then he also directed Bad, Pe- Bad Teacher with Cameron Diaz and Sex Tape with Cameron Diaz. Boo. Ooh. It's due out on December 20th, 22 years after the original. Starts Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart reuniting after Central Intelligence last year. It's also got Jack Black, Karen Gillan, Nick Jonas, and Alex Wolfe. So we took a look at this trailer. It showed us a little bit more than the original trailer. Um, Nate, what did you think of it? Oh, boy. We're going to start with me? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I guess I'll be the Debbie Downer of tonight's show. I, I'm not looking forward to this movie. Uh, I have no... I don't even really have an issue with the fact that it's a sequel to a old franchise that they're rebooting. Like, I have no... like. Uh, sacred love for the original Jumanji that it cannot be touched. That's not what I'm thinking here. I just don't think this looks like an original comedy movie, honestly. Like, uh, Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart uh, aren't really doing it for me. They seem kind of cliches at themselves that we've already seen them do before. Uh, I don't think Jack Black's character looks particularly funny here. His lines seemed kind of childish and contrived and all that jazz. Uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not really buying into this one. I'll probably have to see it when it comes out, but I'm not looking forward to it as it stands right now. Yes, you probably will have to see it, Nate. So mark that on your calendar, December 20th. Get Kate. pumped anyway. Um, I would say, I don't, it's always interesting. Well, first off, it's usually pretty nerve-wracking when you know a a reboot or a sequel or whatever wants to touch an old franchise or you know an old classic whatever you want to call it it's usually pretty risky but a lot of people's grievances with that is that they're not original and i think 
Now, I don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but I think it's at least interesting that they chose a video game. There's, you know, and they that whole adapta- uh, adaptation to it I think is interesting. Um, they got two two studs. People love The Rock. People love Kevin Hart. Um, so I at least think there's hope for it. I don't think it looks great by any means, but I think there's hope for it to be pretty good. At the at least pretty good. Um, I think The Rock in a bit of a pansy kind of role typically gets some chuckles out of me. Uh, Kevin Hart gets a little redundant. Um, but they got Karen Gillan, who's a very good actress. She plays Nebula in Guardians of the Galaxy, for those who don't know. Um, she's a good actress. Um, and Jack Black, taking the persona of a teenage girl obsessed with their social media, I think there's potential there, too. I think the movie, that's what I'm getting at. The movie has potential. I'm not 100% sold, but I don't think it looks terrible, either. I think it it's got me reeled in for now. Jake, you basically hit the nail on the head of everything what I was saying. Oh, sorry. Um, what I wanted to say, at least. Jumanji, the original, of course, we have we have good feelings about it. There's a lot of a wave of nostalgia going with that movie. Uh, it was directed by Joe Johnston at the time, who, who has gone on to do The Rocketeer, Captain America, The First Avenger, uh, Jurassic Park 3. Who said that? I didn't know he did Jumanji. Yeah, he did. Oh, cool. He did indeed. I did indeed say that. Um, but it stars Robin Williams. And, of course, Robin Williams passed away a couple years ago. So I think a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia for that movie. I've seen it a couple years ago. It's it's not a great film, you know? It's one of those kind of, you turn it on on cable, you watch it for when you get to it, and then you just turn it off and you kind of forget that you saw it. Um, having said that, this movie kind of looks like a good successor to that. You know, it looks like it's going to have a few chuckle-worthy moments. Looks like it has a little bit of unexpected comedy in it. There's some decent action set pieces in it. I, I think as far as a good time, goes as at the movies i think it's going to be harmless now is the plot going to be anything great no is it going to be the best comedy of the year probably not but i i think nate i i see where you're coming from i definitely feel like a lot of people feel the way that you do but i think i'm a little bit more willing to give it a chance considering i like the main four and i like the way that they're subverting the expectations of what they usually do on camera and i think that as far as comedy goes you know we haven't had a really big one this year it's been a pretty weak year so this could be a potentially good capper at the end yeah i'm hoping don't get me wrong i I always hope that a movie does well when it earns its earns its chops i'm just i'm getting baywatch vibes from this one where we see a lot of the best scenes from the trailer and then the movie doesn't deliver um if if it proves me wrong great if not, we'll find out come review time. I'm sorry. What were the best scenes of Baywatch? I saw that coming. Uh, I'm trying to keep the PG-13 rating of the show, Drew. Uh, fair. Fair enough. <laughs> is, it, is it R-rated because those sh- scenes were r- horrible and that movie's a travesty? That might be the worst movie The Rock has ever made, and he made The Tooth Fairy. <laughs> so, But that's a discussion for another day. Jumanji, welcome to the jungle, coming out December 20th. You can watch the full trailer now on YouTube. Anyway, that'll do it for the news this week. And now we're going to get into our feature review of the spy sequel, Kingsman, The Golden Circle. We're from the Kingsman Taylor Shop in London. Welcome to Statesman. As your American cousins, we'll be working side by side. It's very American. <laughs> yeah, it is. Manners maketh man. That was the trailer for Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the sequel to the 2015 Spy 007 kind of riff. 
Kingsman The Secret Service. That was directed by Matthew Vaughn, who returns here for this sequel. He also directed X-Men First Class, as we talked about earlier in the show. Stardust, one of my favorite movies, Kick-Ass. And the sequel stars Taron Egerton, once again, as Eggsy. Eggsy's been in Kingsman for about a year now. It takes place about a year after the events of The Secret Service. And somebody's coming after the Kingsman organization. It's a new villain, Poppy. She's this drug dealer played by Julianne Moore. And she kind of takes down Kingsman in a sense. Eggsy and Merlin, played by Mark Strong, are sent on the run as a couple of the lone people out in the field to figure out kind of what happened. And they end up coming across their American cousins, statesmen, and a cast of celebrities and other agents. They've got Tequila, played by Channing Tatum. There's Ginger, the kind of the tech girl, played by Halle Berry. There's the head of the organization, Champagne, played by Jeff Bridges himself, continuing his kind of trilogy of southern twang accents after True Grit and R.I.P.D. And we've got Whiskey, played by Pedro Pascal, the Viper himself. So that'll do it for our setup. Kingsman, it's a movie that I've been looking forward to very much. Uh, It's probably in my top 15 most anticipated. I love the original. Jake, I know you love the original. What did you think of the Golden Circle? Um, not, not bad. It was, it was all right. It was, I wasn't like bad. It just, it could have been better. It was too long. I think there were, you know, they tried to tackle. They might have tried to tackle too many things. Um, I actually just recently saw it, so I'm gathering all my thoughts, like like finalizing all my thoughts still. Um. But it's just generally, I think one of its bigger problems is that it didn't quite nail the feel of the original Kingsman, if you know if you know what I mean. Like it just, it gets a little more unoriginal than the first one was, if that makes any sense. It certainly does. Um, Nate, what did you think? Um, I'm going to kind of kind of mirror Jake's thoughts here. I had really high expectations for this movie because... The original came out of nowhere for me. I didn't, uh, I didn't expect much, and then ended up loving it. And I was hoping that this one would hit the same way. I think this one got the, it got the tone, it got the action, and it got the characters all right uh, from carrying on from the original movie. But it didn't all mesh together the way I wanted it to. Uh, I'll. Second, the fact that this movie is just a little too long for its own good. I think it covers a little bit more ground than it should have when it should have had a little bit clearer of a focus. Uh, overall, definitely a watchable, enjoyable movie, but definitely not as great as that first one was. Nate, you and I had a talk um, when we both saw the film on Thursday night, and you akin it to, or you akin somebody that had heard to it, heard of it and seen it and who akin it themselves to men in black too. Um, and that's, that's a, that's kind of a perfect comparison for me. Um, that's a film that had a great original and kind of suffered from heavy sequelitis coming forward. Um, for me, when I was watching the movie, I was reminded of two films. I was reminded of iron man two, and I was reminded of the matrix reloaded. This movie golden circle is a textbook example of what happens when sequelitis kind of drowns, an original. Iron Man 2 was directed as well by John Favreau after the original Iron Man. The original Iron Man is a great film. The original Kingsman is a really, really good film. Um, and Iron Man 2 took what worked in Iron Man 1 and just doubled everything. It's more, more, more. And it ends up being this overcrowded, kind of messy movie. 
Kingsman 2 is that, but it's also two hours and 20 minutes long, and it's filled with subplots, it's filled with plot developments that are unnecessary. Basically, the entire Statesman part of this film can be accessed, and you could still have a similar story. Um, and it also reminded me of The Matrix Reloaded because some of the action scenes are very heavy on CGI. There's a lot of that Kuiper kinetic style that Matthew Vaughn brought to Kick-Ass and he brought to the original Kingsman, but there's just more of it, and that's from the get-go. The opening scene, the big opening action scene, is just this CGI mess. Um, and it's a, just a case of there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of trying to replicate the success of the first one, and most of the elements are there. You know, you've got another A-list star as the villain, but it feels hollow. It feels like a carbon copy. It feels like somebody else is trying to imitate the style of Matthew Vaughn instead of Matthew Vaughn making a sequel to a successful one of his movies. And it's certainly a lot weaker than the first for me. It's borderline not a good movie. Um, I I think you you totally nailed the part where, you, you know, it just – it feels like it's trying to be as good as the original. It just doesn't. Someone's trying to make it – trying to make this Kingsman movie like the original and just doesn't fully accomplish it. Like – like and like Nate said, the the characters are all good, um, you know the story's fine. There's just there's just too much there's too much going on. And I found myself there was a point where um, uh, what's called my my phone vibrated. and I wanted to check it real quick, and I was like, this is only we're not even quite at the halfway mark. And I was like, that's pretty. I was pretty surprised that we were not even halfway when I when I checked what the notification was. I think it was you guys actually, but I I was like, we're not even halfway through the movie yet. And I was not that I was like frustrated. I was just like, "Wow, this is a lot longer than I had originally thought." And I think some of the plots work, some of them don't. Um, and I actually think the action is is weaker than the first as well. We have that great, great church scene from the first scene, uh, first movie, and you know it's unfair to hope that we'd get a replicant of it. But you know the CG. I'm not a huge fan of CGI action when the CGI is blatantly obvious. And I think the first, the opening action scene is a little bit too blatantly cgi you know and a lot of the action is just some of it's good and some of it's just mediocre it all looked really rubbery in that opening action scene yeah um, i was he, i was pretty surprised it, it, talking about matrix reloaded it reminded me a lot of the burly brawl where neo takes on the hundreds of agent smiths in the alleyway and it just <laughs> it looked ridiculous like the parody on mtv movie awards with sean william scott almost looked as good yeah that's interesting uh i actually thought the the action scenes were my favorite part of the movie. I just thought the movie got bogged down by everything in between the action scenes. There was way too much of, like, will they, won't they going on with all the characters and their own subplots that just kind of bogged it all down and dragged the movie on for as long as it did. It felt weird transitioning from scene to scene just because in between every action set piece that you wanted to see, there were 10 different individual discussions between all the characters to go about how they're feeling or what's going on before moving along to the next action set piece. It's a hard thing to do. It's it's all about pacing, uh, but this movie did not pull it off for me. Um, but once we got to the action scenes, I was I was having a fun time. Um, I actually think the the third act does wrap up pretty nicely, though. And one point, um, you know, aside from generalizing the movie, 
I actually really liked um, who, who's his name? The guy who played whiskey, Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. I I liked him a lot. I've only seen him in Game of Thrones, I think, but I really really enjoyed him as his whiskey. I thought he he gave um, he gave a good performance, and I think his his character's choreography with his whip and his revolver and everything. I liked pretty much everything around that character. Yeah, I think he's easily probably the mo- the best new character for sure. I think the best yeah. performer in the movie, Taron Egerton, really impresses me as an actor. I mean, I've only seen him in any of these two movies, but he was really also very good in Eddie the Eagle, a different kind of role that he had to play. Um, and I'm really excited to see what he does next because he really knows how to anchor one of these movies. Uh, he replicates um, anything wrong with the character of Eggsy is not his fault. It's the script's fault trying to balance too many things, and I'll get more into that with the spoiler section. Yep. Um, but he really does a great job as kind of a audience surrogate, you know, entering into this world of gadgets and girls and everything. Um, and that's an yeah. entry point that we don't really have with the James Bond series. It's something that's unique to the Kingsman series. And I think he really works as that kind of role. He epitomizes the young man character growing into manhood. He's not a teenager, but he is still new to the scene but confident in what he's learned over these last two movies. I really, really like him as Eggie in these movies. I think Julianne Moore makes for a good villain. I don't like her as much as Samuel Jackson's Valentine the First, but I also think that's one of Samuel Jackson's best performances in that movie. Um, she's really having fun, though. You can tell she's having a good time as this maniacally just crazy drug dealer. I don't really know why her character has to be obsessed with the 50s other than it's like a weird Bond villain quirk. Um, that was not very clear to me why she had to have all this 50s paraphernalia, and then uh, kind of kidnap one of the most famous stars from the 80s, which we'll get into in the spoiler section. But, you know, it, it's it's a cool little Bond villain touch, I guess. Uh, it gives her a nice little fortress that she hangs out in. Um, to me, this movie feels like one of those middle Bond films. It's not one of those big Skyfall adventures or From Russia With Love, if we're talking about the Connery movies. It's one of those movies with the kind of absolutely ridiculous things going on. It's got the weird set pieces it's got some outrageous kind of sexism going on in the movie but it's also mixing edgy stuff in the mix like it's if james bond had killed those dozens of henchmen but exploded their heads at the same time and that's kind of what these kingsman movies can do at their best but it just doesn't click this time around it doesn't feel as charming it doesn't feel as fresh and it's a lot of feeling like replicating what the first film did really well but not being able to capture that and i think again it's a lot of the more 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 that we're talking about. Like the return of Colin Firth here, he's a, he's good again as Harry Hart, but his return, the way they bring him back, feels completely sur- superfluous and completely unnecessary to the movie. Wow. Harsh words from Andrew Roger. Uh, are we good to start going into ratings? Okay, if you want to do that. Um, I just wanted to mention one more thing. I really like Henry Jackman's sure. score as well. <laughs> Um, but Nate, why don't you run down what the rating system for our movies are, um, just in case you're joining us for the first time or if you forgot from last time. Sure thing. All right. So our rating system is on the seat scale, copyright of the middle seat show here. (laughs) So, uh, a perfect movie is considered a royal throne. Uh, the best of the best kind of movie you can get. Uh, next down the list is a plush recliner. And that's a great film that does very little wrong. A Wooden Seat is our middling film. Uh, it's something that might be entertaining, but doesn't quite hold up in the long term. Next up, 
On the bad side of the scale is a damp lawn chair, something that's forgettable or aggravating and not usually worth your time. And finally, at the bottom, we have a sleazy outhouse, which is a bad film that makes all the wrong decisions. All right, so those are our ratings. And for me, I think I'm going to give Kingsman, The Golden Circle, a wooden seat. Overall, I enjoyed this movie. It was a popcorn flick. Um, I would... Thinking about it, I think I would recommend in theaters just to get the the most out of the action scenes, which I personally think are one of the stronger aspects of the movie. Uh, what keeps it out of the, the plush recliner and royal throne territories for me is just some weird choices of the script, uh, some very odd uh, movements of the plot, and just not as charming as an, or as original as the first one was i think people that go into this movie expecting more of a comic book movie where everything's over the top are going to have a much better time than those assuming it's going to be a spy movie akin to the first jake what do you think um i think i'm i'm with nate a lot i'm gonna also go with a wooden seat um just because it's not it's not a bad movie i feel like once you get into damp damp lawn chair that's a bad movie um for me, wooden. It's it's also funny adjusting to these ratings. Um, a wooden seat. I feel like is not a bad movie. It's it's okay. It's tolerable. You can watch it and enjoy yourself. And that's kind of what I got. I got Kings Kingsman: The Golden Circle was entertaining enough. It was pretty good, but you know, not quite anything exceptional. Um, I think one of its main problems is that it it needed an editor to cut out some of the stuff that we just didn't need. Like two two hours and twenty minutes, just unnecessary for this kind of movie. Um, and then, you know, some of the, just some of the other, you know, little things that we've talked about, you know, just didn't, didn't need to happen in the movie. Um, but I will say that it's third act, I think picked up for sure. I don't know if you guys agree with that at all, but I think it's third act between action and story wrap up and everything else. I think worked pretty well, but generally the movie was just, was just okay. So I'll give it a wooden seat. I'm teetering in between here because I don't know. I feel like I'm more negative on the movie than you guys are. I'm more disappointed. Uh, it kind of epitomizes a lot of the problems that Hollywood sequels especially have today. Um, it is still a fun time in points, but that kind of comes in sections. So I don't know. I'm somewhere in between wooden seat. I feel like da- damp lawn chair is too harsh. So I'm going to go with like a very, very thorny, very splintery wooden seat. <laughs> um <laughs> It is – I'm not going to give it the bag of popcorn marker because I do think you can just watch this at home and fast forward to the best parts and get through all the extraneous stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit more in our spoiler section. Um, but the movie drags on. It's a lot of overkill. It's a lot of over-the-topness but not in a good way like the first movie was. There are some good things to be had. There are moments of fantastic action. I will say this. there A, a lot of the action scenes rely too much on CGI but I did enjoy the final set piece. I'll give you that, Jake. I enjoyed pretty much every time Pedro Pascal got to flex his muscles. Um, and I really enjoyed Taron Edgerton in the lead role. There are a lot of good elements here wrapped in a not-so-good movie. And I think that's really hard to quantify, but I think you're better at home just renting this and watching it and certain segments in the best parts. Um, so that's going to be it for our non-spoiler review here of Kingsman the Golden Circle. We're going to get into spoilers here. If you have not seen Kingsman the Golden Circle... Tune into the end. Nate will have put the 
uh, time codes into the description of this video. If you have seen Kingsman the Golden Circle or you don't care about spoilers, join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! Okay, so we're here into our spoiler section, and I, I think the thing that we keep hitting on is the fact that this movie is full with these bunch of subplots, these different directions that the movie didn't necessarily need to go in. And I think the one that really stuck out for me is having Taron Edgerson's character with the princess or the queen that he saved and had anal sex with at the end of the original uh, <laughs> First Kingsman. Talking about know, a spoiler. Young love guys. <laughs> um, but – it felt like a way to get him as a character to quote-unquote grow up when I feel like that could have just been done. You didn't have to make him like a duke at the end of the film. You could have just had him, you know, grow up because, you know, all of his friends died in an explosion. I feel like that's going to help a person grow up just as much as falling in love and getting married. I think yeah, I'm, that, is, that is a good point there, Joe. Go ahead, I, Jake. I think I'm a little in the middle because I think it was – it was a different way to show that he's maturing, and I kind of, I kind of liked his, his conflict with some of the the issues that he had to go with. Like when he was he was talking to that girl at the festival, and he was his his only way to get the tracker in her was in her. You know, he had a lot of conflict going on there. There, okay. Um, I have I have I have problems with that scene. I'm sorry to cut you right. off, Jake. But no, no, no. I I agree. There was a there are other ways to go about that. That is but, such a gratuitous scene. And yes, <laughs> there, that is such Matthew Vaughn indulging in shocking humor and stuff like that, and that was that was a step too far for me. That was the point where I'm realizing, like, all right, enough. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you didn't have to do that, but for me, I think right before that, when he facetimes uh, his girlfriend, there was some true, real conflict in there, and I think if nothing else, Egerton's performance showing his internal conflict was really good. So I think, I think him having a girlfriend was was pretty good. But I could also see it working without it, so I'm a little torn with that. Um, yeah, I, I'm more on Jake with this one too there, Drew. I I thought it was kind of a bold choice to make a relationship out of the first movie, just because the princess being saved was kind of written off as a joke in the original. And seeing her back as a main character was actually kind of refreshing. Um, but what didn't work for me, I think in terms of a relationship was the scene in the bar where Eggsy gets his like best martini he's ever had. And um, immediately after having like this moment where he looks at the dog picture and thinks, I know how I'm going to get back together with my girlfriend goes over to Colin first character and saves him. And it just, oh, I forgot about that. You're right. Train of thoughts where the conflict of the scene was all about his girlfriends, and then he went to his father figure instead and saved him. It was just very weird thematically to just shift his attention like that. You're that right. Was, I actually um, forgot about that. It was super poor story editing, and we're talking about how the movie's yeah. overcrowded. They, it was time to get back to that subplot, and I think that's exactly. a good transition to my favorite kind of rescuing a dead character who doesn't know where they are, Amnesia. I love amnesia, and by saying I love it, I hate when movies use it as a kind of a cop-out. Um, so the idea is that the statesman saved Colin Firth after he was shot by Samuel Jackson at the uh, at the end of the second act of the first film, shot in the head, 
Um, the Kingsman did not see the Statesman swoop in less than two minutes later and save him with this Deus Ex Machina head wrap thing. Uh, and he just has no memory of his skills for the first half of the film. It just felt like a way to bring Colin Firth back and a really weak way to do it. The worst part for that was we know that he's going to get his skills back because we've watched the trailers. We've seen yeah. the cool badass scene. You don't need to tease us the whole movie of, oh, when is Colin going to regain his memories? Yeah, uh, We don't know. We'll have to see after these messages in five different scenes completely unrelated and it makes the 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 agents when they're at the bar and colin firth is about to keep teach those guys a lesson uh and he's getting his ass kicked it kind of makes eggsy and merlin and for a little bit whiskey look like kind of dicks for clearly knowing that he's not ready to go back into battle but let him get his ass whooped anyway and that was also such a forced scene like the guy randomly comes up for no reason because what they're yeah they have an accent it, that like, was there was no was the worst part that was like the, the forced me. the most forced scene of the entire movie i just I was like, where, where is this coming from? Just to, for, you know, to give us something that we liked from the first movie, just redo it? Like, I don't, at least set it up better. Yeah, at that's, least. A, that's a very sequel thing to do. And Nate, like you said, that that is one of the most sequely moments of it. Another is later. We haven't even mentioned Elton John has a huge part in this movie. Uh, very <laughs> I actually, I actually like this. I, 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 like, I like some I, of it. I did too. Okay, but you liked it too, Drew? Yeah, the I'm part, I, I thought he has some of the best moments in the movie, but the part where I'm talking about where they're kind of recalling sequely, um, where, you know, the whole thing at the end of the first movie, we're like, what do I get if I saved it in the, save the world? And the princess is like, oh, I'll, I'll let you do it in the butt. And then later they come back to Elton John and Colin Firth is like, oh, uh, so what do I get if I save the world? And I, I, for a second, I go, is he going to say do it in the butt again? And then he's like, no, I'll give you backstage passes. And it's like, oh, you you sly Kingsman the Golden Circle, you. <laughs> I actually got I a like pretty that. good chuckle out of that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I got a, I was like, that's that's clever. I'll give that to you. I like it. Um, but I want to talk I want to talk a little bit about uh, good spoiler. I think arguably the biggest spoiler of the movie is with uh, Mark Strong's character. Um, you know, obviously – I want to make sure my dad's not outside hearing this. Um, <laughs> Mark Mark Strong's character Merlin um, sacrifices himself, but I think that was one of the strongest scenes in the entire movie. It's the second movie oh. in the last month starring Channing Tatum to have a John Denver song in it. Like they sing the same country road song that his daughter sang on stage. <laughs> that is Logan true. Oh, yeah. That's so weird. That. Um, yeah, she- I actually really like that scene though. Okay. Uh, Oh, go ahead, Nate. Elaborate on that because I'm gonna totally counter this point, Jake. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna be with Nate on this one. So with 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 Merlin, how he how he sacrifices himself and gets them gets the attention on him. I thought it was was well executed, and I did not see it coming at all. I thought it was well executed. It was a little stunning, and it was kind of sad because I liked him as a character. Okay. Well, this might seem roundabout, but let me get there. Um. One of my favorite parts of the movie was how well set up the final fight scene was. Because throughout the entire movie, we have saw the, the tattoo robot. We saw the bowling alley. We saw all these set pieces. And then we got to see Eggsy and um, uh, Harry. Harry Hart's um, both go through all these different places that we've been built up throughout the whole movie and make an awesome roller coaster of an action scene through it. Probably my favorite part of the movie. 
But it blew my mind that a movie that had the right kind of forward thinking to set up all these action scenes to get rid of the character Merlin with a mine. And the reason it really, really irked me was, A, they went through the whole scene showing that they had a bat that could detect mines, and C, it had been set up multiple times in the movie beforehand that the mines could be turned off digitally. And both of those payoffs of information didn't go anywhere. It was the only two parts of the final fight scene that weren't set up beforehand. And it ended in a really cool character dying for basically no reason. So you, you have problems not... that they set up the dominoes and then didn't knock them down. I, I had problems that they set up the dominoes and knocked every single one down except for these two scenes just so Merlin could blow up five dudes instead of, I don't know, shooting the dudes like every other bad guy in that scene. It, it really annoyed me because the movie had potential to probably go to a four if they had set that up right and made it like a really cool payoff like they did for the rest of that action scene. That's but, that's a little interesting that you kind of took that route with it. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but my big problem with it was that the fact that they set it up as far as, as a character moment where him and Halle Berry are having a conversation earlier in the film and they're like, have you ever thought about being in the field? And like, no, we get to do all the cool stuff here. And then he finally gets his chance in the field and they treat him like a complete red shirt. Like, you thought he was going to do something cool, but he's just there to be a sacrifice, which is something easily like a drone could have done or something like that. It just felt like a cop-out for a character that I was liking, and I thought they were giving him a good amount of development. Like, I really actually like the scene a lot, where we get to see him and Eggsy get really drunk off the whiskey and break down and start yeah, crying for their fallen one. friends. Like, we get to see some emotional emotional moments and some personality out of these two characters. And as much, as much as I love Harry Hart, he's not much more than just kind of an Obi-Wan Kenobi character. And it feels like we're replacing the all the development we did with Merlin at the end of the first and throughout the second with Harry Hart, who I love Colin Firth again, but he does not need to be back in this movie, and he's not as interesting a character now. But the fans love him, so. Hey, I, Nate, I agree with you with the bad thing because I thought of that as well, and I was like, oh, come on. It's right. It's right there. Um, and I guess you guys, you guys brought me back to your way a little bit, but I think the scene in general was pretty well executed with the singing and him, you know, him getting, him getting, even though he didn't want it, I feel like how much better, how much better of an, of a way to go out is it than to sacrifice yourself so your friends can save the day, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't discount the emotional value of it just because Mark Strong is such a great actor. There were Yeah. I think he pulls it off really well. Yeah. But I, I think just the setup was a little wonky. Yeah, um, no, with, that's totally fair. But the entire finale, I agree, is pretty fun. Um, I love the idea that she has these robot dogs, the Benny and the Jet. Um, but the one moment in the finale that took it a step too far was having Whiskey kind of betray them. That felt like just an extra kind of coda, an extra couple of ten minutes that could have been excised from the film completely. Why not just leave it as the final thing where they poison her? Um and I understand why they set it up earlier in the film. They had to follow through on it. However, I don't know if I thought that should have been an element that was discussed at all in, in the film. And I, his personal vendetta, whatever, I just – it was not something that I thought was necessary. Or if, if they wanted to do it, have have him be like the – like if she's the big bad, have him be the, the top henchman in disguise. You know, him him coming after 
her just felt out of place and to throw us an extra action scene. Yeah, I think it's pretty akin to the church scene from the original movie. The movie bent itself backwards to give us that church scene because we wanted to see one of these Kingsmen go all out on a group of people. But you can't have a good guy just murder people for no reason. So they came up with the whole church scenario to make it happen. Uh, so that way they could just go full crazy. This tried to do the same thing where, crap, we need to have like somebody comparable of skill to fight these two characters. I know. Let's make this guy evil. And I agree. It didn't work nearly as well as it could have or should have. Yeah, I think the difference between this and the two and the church scene, there's two differences. The first is the church scene is amazing. It might be one of the best action scenes <laughs> of the last Amen, 15 hallelujah. years. Uh, and this action scene was good, but it was just an excuse to use that meat grinder again, which w admittedly was a pretty disgusting death, oh, as yeah. was the one earlier in the movie. Uh, it's kind of been ingrained in my brain as one of the worst deaths of the year so far. But <laughs> – the original Kingsman was also not two hours and 20 minutes long, was not already pushing too many subplots, was not the kind of film that needed to end with a big wedding or needed to introduce Channing Tatum yet completely sideline him and yep. Han Solo Carbonite for the entire movie. Yeah, and they did that to Holly Berry too. There was not, there was not a need to get those kind of you know star, uh, star actors for this. It was just an excuse for them to play cosplay, and that's what I'm kind of saying. I don't – I don't dislike any of the statesman stuff that happens in the movie, but this movie could happen without that. Think of it kind of like um, – I'm trying to think of a movie that it, it's comparable to. I don't know why the first one that comes up to me is G.I. Joe 2. But think of a movie where somebody's a part of a big organization and it gets dissolved. Um, I'm sure James Bond has done this at some point. But they're, they have to go rogue basically. Mission Impossible. That's a, that's a good example. Ghost Protocol or Rogue Nation where they kind of have to do things on their own. They don't have a cop out another organization to run to. And I mean this was just a fun way to get some famous actors in there. But, you know, it adds some more time to this movie and that time piles up and it ends up dragging like you said, Jake. Yeah, and I see I I like the addition of the statesman. It's just this this movie needed needed an editor and you know, maybe maybe Nate was the man for the job. I don't know, but they needed to. They, <laughs> yeah, call me up. At least like like ten minutes, you know. And I, I know people people listening to this might laugh, but ten minutes can be a lot. An extra ten minutes can be you know an unnecessary amount of fluff in a movie. Agreed, makes a huge difference. Yeah, like two hours and ten minutes is a relatively standard length movie. Maybe slightly on the long side. Two twenty is pushing long. So I don't know. I Speaking think of. Editing ourselves here. Jake, why don't you give your final thoughts? <laughs> I was going to say, I think you guys disagree with me on this a little bit. I think it's it's uh, originality lacks a little bit from the first one. Like the first one feels totally different. Like not totally different. We've seen spy movies before, but it feels pretty different and pretty original from other action movies. This one, you know, opens with a big car chase, you know, has has a betrayal, has a, a you know, a pretty sly villain some motivations are kind of weird. Like it doesn't feel all that original like the first one did. And I feel I had a little bit of an issue with that. And then there's just they try to tackle too many things. Um but as far as final thoughts go, it's still it's still good if you really like the first one, you still should see this. It's at least worth your time a little bit. Um but it's, you know, un unfortunately it's not it's just not all that great. It's Nate, just okay. Final thoughts, any kind of spoilers that you want to bring up? Yeah. Uh Again, this is a middling movie. 
the stuff that it does well, it does really well in my opinion. I enjoyed the action scenes. I enjoyed all the snarkiness from the characters, um, whether they were American or on the British side there. I think everyone was having fun. Uh, just this movie kind of goes a little too far into all of the subplots, um, and it doesn't connect on where it really needs to to get behind this from a story perspective. Uh, all in all, I enjoyed this movie, but I think it's going to be regulated to an FX uh, while I'm doing my homework kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's where I'm standing too. I'm a little more negative than the two of you seem to be, maybe just because it was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. I, Unlike you guys, I wasn't really thrown off guard by the first Kingsman. Um, I had been anticipating it for a while. It actually got pushed back from an October release date to a February release date of 2015. Um, and I had been seeing trailers for months, and it, it just looked like a great time at the movies, and it ended up living up to that potential. The trailers for this film looked really good as well. Um, they used a great um, Frank Sinatra sample. They used a great My Generation by The Who um, remix, and it just looked like a fun time. It added up the ante, but sometimes you can have too much of a good thing, and Kingsman the Golden Circle is a textbook example of that. It adds a lot of elements to the pot. It tries to retain what made the stew so good in the first place, but it ultimately ends up a little bit rotten. And, you know, I don't think it's a terrible movie. I agree. It definitely has some redeeming elements. It's definitely worth renting and watching. But I don't think it's worth going to the theater to rush out to see, especially with tickets being so expensive and time being so short. Anyway, that's going to do it for our review of Kingsman the Golden Circle. And that will bring us to the end here to this second episode of The Middle Seats. Nate Lungarini. 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 Can you tell people how to find us around the internet? Sure thing. You can find us at The Middle Seats on YouTube. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns for the show, you can email us at themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. That's themiddleseatshow at gmail.com. And our YouTube channel is The Middle Seats. We're really looking for any kind of feedback that you can give us. We're trying to get better and better every week. Hopefully this show was an improvement on the last one. We tried to make it more succinct and make sure that we weren't going over our time. Any feedback is really appreciated. If you liked our show, please share it. Please let everybody you know know that The Middle Seats is back and better than ever. So that'll do it for this episode. you got to tune in next week. Um, we haven't decided what movie we're going to be reviewing yet, but... Probably that Tom Cruise one. Yeah, I would say Whatever looking at is. the schedule, we're most likely going to review American Made, starring right. Tom Cruise, and directed by his Edge of Tomorrow director, Doug Liman. So that'll do it here for the show. Jake Hensler, any final thoughts? On what? Okay. For Jake Hensler and Nate Lungarini, I'm Andrew Roger. Take a seat, everyone. We'll be back very soon. <laughs>